I know, I know, we're late. It's been a super busy week. There is a lot going on. Also, we have a great episode for you this week. Really, really great. This week, I am delighted to be able to bring you a one-on-one exchange between myself and David French. David is the senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist of Time, senior fellow Trinity Forum. I believe his Substack is called French Press. Pretty sure. I should probably have notes when I'm doing this. Anyways, Matt and Moynihan are both someplace and they will be back soon. But we really have done technical surveys and we know empirically, as a matter of fact, that I am actually the reason that you tune in and you will not be disappointed this week. It's going to be good. Um, It's a really fascinating conversation. We probe some of our disagreements around systemic racism. He offers some important context about why our political debates are so intense and counterproductive. Um, and we briefly revisit the controversy that was created by the critical race theory editorial that myself and Mr. French and a few other folks published in the New York Times about a month ago now and specifically respond to assertions that we have misrepresented the substance of the critical race theory bans that are still working their way through some state legislatures and also the suggestion that we have become enablers of critical race theory's public school takeover and I want to get to all of that. But before we get into this week's release, I did want to talk a little bit about something that happened last week. As you probably know, the long-promised Amy Cooper interview finally materialized. It was part of a collaboration with our very good friend, Barry Weiss, who has her own podcast called Honestly, which you can find at honestlypod.com, but also via any, you know, I mean, you're listening to a podcast now. I imagine you can find her podcast But we did collaborate on an episode. The title of that episode is The Real Story of the Central Park Karen. And I'm enormously proud to have been able to do this with Barry and her team and just wanted to say thanks to the legendary Andy Mills, who, if you've listened to this podcast, you you know, um, and to be able to to work with someone as accomplished and talented as Andy on this was really, really great. I think I'm pretty sure that Andy is the Rick Rubin to my Kanye West. And if you don't understand that reference, shame on you. But also Megan Phelps Roper, she's talented and thoughtful and is incredibly compassionate and just brings a a tremendous amount to the table. And of course, I have to thank Barry Weiss, who Barry is a lightning rod, (laughs) surprisingly, oddly. Um, But Barry is a friend of mine. And I appreciate the fact that Barry and I agree on some things and disagree on plenty of other things. But what I appreciate most is her bravery. I brought the opportunity to do the Amy Cooper interview together and collaboratively to them. And Barry didn't hesitate to say yes. And I think Barry didn't hesitate to say yes, knowing that doing an interview like this, that was interested in perhaps complicating an established narrative that was really important to lots of people was the sort of thing that would make her a target for opprobrium and scorn and disgusting ad hominem slurs. And there has been no shortage of that from certain corners. Um, But Barry being Barry was happy to dive into it with me. And I'm pretty damn proud of how it turned out. I do hope that you will go find the podcast and listen to it on your own. And you can judge for yourself what's there. But I wanted to address the question of why bother to do something like this at all. What really stands out to me when I think about the whole Amy Cooper episode is what it must be like to be ripped from, 
kind of the comfortable anonymity of an ordinary life and then to be thrust into the blistering, untempered attention of the national news media, not for days, but for months. And it seems to me that we should want stories about that sort of thing to be surrounded with meaningful context, even if that someone is in what seems to be an indisputably compromised position. In fact, maybe perhaps especially when someone is in a position like that. It's not about vindication or absolution. It feels important to say that the podcast was about illuminating what happens before and after the cameras started recording that clip that we've all seen. How did these two people become entangled with one another? Why did it matter so much to all of us and to the press? And with respect to the press, why did the national and regional news seem to miss so many details that helpfully complicate this particular affair? Why did they report on this in a uniformly one-sided way? We received tons of plaudits from professional journalists I respect and enthusiastic responses from a lot of media consumers, listeners of this very fine podcast than others. But the critics had more things to say. Um, in addition to the ad hominems that were directed at Barry, um, I've certainly gotten plenty of aspersions of my own but there are a couple of categories of criticism here. Some people are just offended that we're talking about this at all. They think it's unacceptable to give Amy Cooper a platform because she's a monstrous racist and they just know it. I understand that argument, I suppose. I disagree profoundly. It was important enough for us to pay attention to before. Seems appropriate to get the other side documented and figure out if there's anything else to learn. In the course of the podcast, we survey both unreported and underreported details about the gentleman who was involved in this circumstance, a man named Christian Cooper. We talk about his previous encounters in the park, some of which he is himself attested to and others that have only been reported about. And we introduce some new recordings that you probably have not heard before. And I'll admit that a lot of the material complicates things in a way that makes it harder for you to believe the established narrative that really makes Amy Cooper seem like a total monster. But in my opinion, that's not so much a function of any bias that I might have. I think it has a hell of a lot to do with the fact that the prevailing narrative is so one-sided. Amy Cooper is presented in media reports as a caricature. In fact, she's presented as an explicitly racist caricature. It's going to be hard for anyone to live up to being as monstrous as she's imagined to be, in my estimation. And when the media systematically fails to report things that might seem remotely exculpatory of her, that seems really important. They insisted that she was performing an act in that 911 call that we've all seen where she gets progressively more upset and nobody bothered to find the 911 recordings from the city that had the other side of that call that showed that she couldn't hear what was being said. They insisted that Mr. Cooper was obviously just politely asking her to leash her dog, but she refused. And there's reason to believe that that was never really the case. It's one thing to say he hasn't done anything wrong. It's another thing entirely to say that all he did was ask her to leash her dog. And we talk about that. And on the occasions when someone asked Mr. Cooper about the vague threat that he issued while he was engaging with Amy Cooper, 
where he says to her, if you're going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do and you're not going to like it. Well, the threat is either buried in the contents of some article way at the bottom where you barely encounter it or it's sanitized and wrapped in some kind of interesting context that makes it seem completely innocuous. Christian, a 57-year-old Harvard-educated science editor, was birdwatching in a wooded area of New York Central Park called The Ramble when he encountered a woman whose dog was loose. I said, excuse me, ma'am, but dogs in The Ramble have to be on the leash at all times. And she said, well, the dog runs are closed. What made you pull out the phone and start recording it? Well, that's a little bit of the irony. It had nothing to do with race. It was just a conflict between a dog walker and a birder. Please don't come close to me. Please, please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. She basically pulled the pin on the race grenade and tried to lob it at me. She says, though, at one point that you said to her, look, if you're going to do what you want, I'm going to do what I want, and you're not going to like it. That's absolutely true. He says he only planned to offer a treat to the dog to get the owner to leash it. It's an old bird watcher's trick that dog owners tend to resent. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble. At the point that she makes that phone call, it's very clear that, you know, there is no physical threat to her at all. It's the iPhone and the dog treats. There's no doubt the reason why this story means so much to so many Americans has something to do with America's obsession with race and race-related issues. I think I've probably said in another context that America is possessed by race. There's no other issue that so animates our concerns and excites us. And in this particular circumstance, both during the call with 911, but more importantly, in most people's minds before Amy Cooper uses the word African-American when describing Mr. Cooper. But importantly, knowing what I know now, I don't have a problem saying that of all the things about this story that are important and worth investigating, that question about why she said an African-American man is threatening my life, it's not one that stands out to me as the one that needs the most attention. I think our obsession with race in this context is pretty tedious and in many respects unfortunate, but it's also necessarily speculative. No one knows what she meant, including folks who insist that she could only have meant to be using her whiteness or weaponizing his race to send the police after him. There are a universe of really important questions that one can ask about that circumstance. And whatever your thoughts about what she said and how she said it, it seems to me that you can both believe that she was wrong to have brought up race in that context and still afford to consider whether or not there is additional context that helps you understand what happened then and helps you think about how you'll react the next time you see a 30-second or 40-second clip of someone having an embarrassing moment or having perhaps the worst day of their lives and then having it blasted across the country and you being invited to participate in the complete excommunication of this person from polite society. When I asked Amy why she used the words African-American, she said to me that she thought 
that she might have just been saying what she imagined she would have to say to a 911 operator later on. Sure. And, you know, I think to understand that question is to really think about this in the broader context of what had already transpired at this point. You know, I was I was in a situation, I was a woman, I was alone in a park. I had been threatened multiple times at this point. You know, my, my dog was trying to be lured away from me. I felt trapped in the park and, and my hands were shaking. My, I, 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 was, I was struggling to, you know, you know, find my words or anything like that. And, you know, really at this point, my mind is already racing forward to when I call 911, what am I going to say? How am I going to describe him? so that, you know, someone can find us and, and get us help. And, you know, to the, to the same extent, if it had been a white man, I would have said, there's a white man threatening me. If it had been a white woman, I would have said a white woman is threatening me. It was just a mm-hmm. descriptive term. I let the answer stand on its own because I also imagine that it's a thing that she's thought about perhaps more than anything else since what was probably the worst day in her life. And once you've listened to the podcast, I guess the question that you have to wrestle with is... If a woman has her dog off leash in the wrong area of a park, does that justify yelling at her, haranguing her, making vague threats, making her uncomfortable in a way that you know has tended to make people uncomfortable in the past? Does it justify after having done all of that while she seems to be complying with your request whipping out your camera and recording her? Maybe. And if you're that woman and you're confronted with a man who's doing all of these things, is it justifiable at that point to threaten him, to threaten to call the police and to tell them that he is threatening your life? I don't know if you believe that or not. What else do you do? I don't know. But I think it's an important story, and I think it's worth spending some time thinking about And the fact that you know her name and you know his name and you've seen both of their visages all over the place and you know that one of them has been sainted and the other has been scorned, I think that's important. And I think it's really important to understand why media organizations missed so many obvious things. So with all that said, I commend it to you and I hope you enjoy this week's podcast about a completely different subject although it's another time that I pissed off a different end of the Twitter sphere. So here is my conversation with David French. Well, David, thank you very much for joining me again. This is your second time on the podcast, I think. Second time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's fantastic. Thanks for having me back. For sure. And and this is one of the rare one-on-one conversations. So this will be a a very different experience um, than, I don't even know, both Matt and Moynihan present when we talked the last time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We had the whole crew. Good. Well, we've gotten rid of those reprobates um, and that's appropriate. (laughs) Um, As listeners know, you, myself, Jason Stanley and Thomas Chatterton Williams co-authored a piece that appeared in the New York Times that suggested that these bans on critical race theory in K through 12 education and in some other contexts were probably not a great idea. Right. (laughs) To put, it, to put it mildly. And I think the piece was nuanced and it was careful, but interestingly, it became far more controversial than I appreciated it would get. Maybe you had a different perspective on what it was likely to inspire. 
Um, certainly <laughs> Jason did. Jason told me before it was published, the conservatives are going to come after you. And I was like, God, are you kidding? No, I've got a reputation. People know me. They right. know what I think about these things. And no, I was wrong. I had relationships disintegrate. Like people who yeah. turned on me violently. In fact, the, the most prominent example of that is the change in the relationship that I've had with Chris Rufo, who was on the podcast the week before that thing dropped and who I publicly said, yeah. good guy, I like him. And at this point, I even hesitate to mention his name because I don't, I don't want to denigrate someone I know publicly. But when I see them behaving in ways that are clearly dishonest and they won't talk to me in private anymore, this becomes a problem. And it's one thing for people to disagree with me and you are honestly wrong. Um, right. But it, it becomes a different thing when I can't say that the differences in our perspectives on things are really a function of an honest reckoning with the facts that just leads us to different conclusions or at least a, a different perspective on what the facts are here. I think in certain instances, um, especially with his characterization of a piece that you recently wrote on a similar topic at your Substack, yeah. the characterizations are just obviously dishonest. Completely and off. Seem to, yeah. seem to deliberately miss the mark. Oh, yeah. I mean, the response to the op-ed was exactly what I expected it to be. <laughs> my, my, my wife could tell you I was before the day before, uh, it went up. I said, I'm just buckling up because I know exactly what is going to happen here. Yeah. And sure enough, it was exactly as heated and exactly as fundamentally dishonest as I've come to expect from parts, certainly not all, but parts of right-wing Twitter. There is almost almost a mania that has taken over in some ways, not just that CRT is a threat to the Republic, but there is one way to respond to CRT and it is our mm -hmm. way to respond mm -hmm. to CRT and that any other way is not tough. It is not strong that we are the tough. We are the strong. We have ident identified the threat. And if you're not with us in concept and tactics, mm -hmm. then we are against you and you are a bad person. You're not just a bad person. You should be destroyed. And this is this is kind of a dynamic that you see. And it's not just the CRT issue, but it's a dynamic that we see all the time on the illiberal parts of Twitter on the right and on the left. I mean, you've mm -hmm. seen the gang tackling that takes the cancel culture gang tackling that takes place on left wing Twitter and happens all the time. Um and, you know, a lot of these folks would would say that they are totally opposed to cancel culture and they're totally opposed to these Internet mobs and all of this. And then they go ahead and form their own mob. And again, uh, what you said, I think, is very, really important. An enormous amount of the commentary, if you want to call it that, or the attacks were just straight up deceptive. They were just mm -hmm. straight up deceptive. And it becomes very difficult to respond to just out and out deception because um, their core fans are going to believe what they're going to say. And then when you try to respond to it, you often end up inadvertently elevating the deception itself and making it more prominent. It's a real struggle to figure out exactly how to deal with something like that. Yeah. That last bit you said about having to respond to a fallacious argument 
and ingrained yeah. in people's minds. Like this is a known tactic amongst many people who are professionally dishonest. Like that's yes. something that they do. And we know that this has an effect on people's thinking. And I've been thinking about the broader way in which our political discourse operates for a long time. I mean, I essentially do a podcast that is fundamentally about that. We do a media criticism right. podcast. Most of what we try to do is get people to contemplate the nuance and the, the details associated with particular stories that are being published and the news cycle generally. And it's one thing for this podcast to preach nuance and complexity and sweating the details. And I'm, I'm delighted that people listen, and a number of yeah. people actually. And even when they don't agree, I think that they get that that's what we're trying to do. But the real world is, is complicated. So we should grapple with that. At the same time, there's this reality, and I'm going to try to contextualize this, and I, I don't know if I'll do this well, but our political conflicts and the coverage of the same are often binary. Mm -hmm. And while I want people to grapple with the nuance, the best way to do that in some cases might be to press them to consider the way these binaries emerge and operate. And in some cases, you'll have binaries about the same issue that exists on the left and the right. And the hardcore partisans believe these binaries, those illiberal wings of Twitter. But I also think that the dominant media entities that exist are largely representing the polls in our politics. Yeah. And they are bypassing the really messy, complicated, nuanced middle that actually captures the way I think most people feel about these issues. And if I were to make it specific, there are a few recent examples of this. Is COVID a deadly pandemic or is it just the flu? Are we vaccine devotees or vaccine skeptics? Are you racist or are you anti-racist? So you, you kind of get where I'm going with that. Mm -hmm. and I think it, it gets more complicated because, as I mentioned, you can have opposing binaries operating on the same topic. So <laughs> in the case of the critical race theory debate, on the right, you'll have, are you a fan of indoctrinating elementary school kids with critical race theory? I should, I should probably have like a voice changer I use when I say critical race theory in that context. <laughs> or at least a soundtrack, like <laughs> an ominous. race theory. Yes. <laughs> um, or do you support without reservations any haphazardly constructed ban on what will stop K through 12 cultural Marxism? That's the, how the right thinks about it. And then on the yeah. left, it's do you want to teach the truth about slavery or are you determined to lie and obscure the <laughs> truth? And any attempt to stake out a more nuanced position than that is often met with befuddlement or complete disbelief and condemnations for being disloyal or, you know, actively supporting the opposite views than you actually hold. Am, am I making yeah, sense? I mean, the, no, totally. I mean, totally. Okay. And, it, you know, and, the, and a lot of this is exacerbated by the particular social media platform that the elite are used disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's, that's Twitter, yeah. which allows for instantaneous short soundbite drive-by sniping. And this is where <laughs> the entire political elite spends a large portion of their day. Political yeah. cultural elite spends a large portion of their day. And Twitter has a different culture than Facebook or Reddit or Instagram or some of these others, Twitter pulls people towards extremes so that mm -hmm. already we're pulled towards extremes just by the underlying cultural conditions of the United States. And then it's exacerbated by this particular social media platform. So the answer seems to be always the proper response to extremism 
is counter extremism. You're being constantly tested your loyalty to your team by the demonstrations of animosity to the opposing team. So right, right. what ends up happening is that the fundamental organizing principle of American political culture right now is, is called negative partisanship. It's, hmm. it's that you are for your side, not so much because you love your side's ideas. Like even the people who are, who are attacking us relentlessly about that New York Times op-ed, many of them were saying, oh yeah, the laws have problems. Uh, yeah, that's our point. <laughs> the laws have problems, but it's better but than nothing. <laughs> yeah, but what's I never, I you know, I never seen so many quote unquote conservatives saying, yeah. "Well, a bad law is better than no law." What? It's insane. Um, yeah. What ends up happening is that because the fundamental organizing principle of negative partisanship is not support for your own side's policies, it's opposition to the other side. It's politics centered around and motivated by animosity. So that mm -hmm. is the central organizing fact and central cultural fact of American politics right now. It's politics centered around animosity. You gain an audience by expressing that animosity very eloquently. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this happen a number of times. People who will gain an audience, for example, by attacking hyper-woke folks on the left or illiberal folks on the left, but mm -hmm. then they get trapped because if they turn around and focus on illiberalism on the right, well, we can't have that. We can't have that. Don't talk about me like that. Dave. Yeah. It's, it's the central organizing principle is animosity. And so yeah. you are evaluated based on who you're expressing animosity against. It, it's interesting that you say that because I'm being, uh, being tongue in cheek here, but I, I kind of mean it. Like, I think most people who know who I am probably know that I am skeptical of a lot of the things associated with the, the quote unquote racial reckoning. And they have an expectation about where my, my political valence is lead me in a bunch of other contexts. But there's also a lot of people who know that the universe of other beliefs that I have is not really consistent with either one of the two kind of dominant mm -hmm. political entities in this country. Like I'm a classical liberal. I think we might both embrace that label. I'm also a vehement libertarian, but I also appreciate that there is an inclination to be particularly critical of one side or the other to develop, if not loyalties, at least an instinct for detecting the defects on one side of the fence or the other. And I wonder about how you think about your own public project. And I'd, I'd like to turn to this piece that you wrote recently, Structural Racism Isn't Wokeness, It's Reality, which... I find when I read you, it always reminds me of really fond memories that I have about the period <laughs> of my life when I was a devout evangelical, which may be precisely what you want. Um, so <laughs> damn you, David French. Um, but, but I also have a lot of complicated feelings about a number of the themes that are in here. And I want to mm -hmm. mine some of that stuff. But before we get into it, I wanted to ask the question I was just leading in with. This is addressed to a conservative evangelical audience. And right. it is addressing not exclusively, but primarily the defects that you seem to detect there. Do you think about the fact that you are going to primarily spend your time critiquing them and trying to implore them to do things in a different way rather than detailing some of the failures of the other side, so to speak? That's a really good question. You know, I'm an evangelical. I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, the um, very conservative evangelical denomination. And 
one thing that you're going to find when you are in evangelical circles is evangelicalism is right now in the grips of an awful lot of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, it feels embattled. Okay. And one of the things that I've consistently wrote against is this sort of notion of, of fear and that of all people, evangelicals should, if they're reading scripture should be more fearless. I mean, there's, you know, constant admonitions throughout scripture that we should fear not. The apostle Paul says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. And so one of the things that I've tried to consistently argue is that of all people, we should not be the people of negative partisanship. We should not be the people motivated by animosity. We should be people motivated by truth. Okay. And the external cultural headwinds are far less of a threat to the church than the church's own failings. Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church, talking about Peter, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the church is going to exist. The church is going to persevere. But we also know through themes throughout scripture that the church can undermine itself through its own sin, through its own failings and its own faults. And so and so one of the things that I, I try to do is try to exhort people to be fearless, to not um, believe that, you, not define yourself in a partisan way, and try to fight through a lot of this rhetoric to find out what's really going on in American culture and what should we do about it. And my thesis is there is no comfortable partisan home for Christians right now. There is no, if you're mm. talking about concepts of biblical justice as opposed mm -hmm. to sort of party platforms, what is biblical justice? There's not a comfortable partisan fit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't right. mean that you won't vote for one side or the other in any given election, but your fundamental identity will not and should not be partisan. Yeah. And so that's why I wrote this thing Sunday was I was trying to say, okay, Let's just look theologically and historically at American life and ask ourselves about this concept of structural racism. And is this something real? And one quick side note on that. I've, for a long time, I've resisted using terms like systemic racism or structural racism because mm -hmm. they're often trigger words mm -hmm. for people on the right. They get very upset when they hear those words. So I've used euphemisms. I've said things like the legacy or the consequences of 345 years combined of slavery and Jim Crow. And then people go, oh, look at David. He's talking about systemic racism. And so <laughs> you can't get away. Yeah, you can't you can't get away from it. So I wanted to just drill down on this concept. And then I wanted to let people know. And because, a lot, again, a lot of this people are reading this through a partisan lens that saying that I understand that there are these persistent consequences of those 345 years does not then imply that the progressives are right about the remedies. It does not then imply that you're buying into an entire progressive narrative either about CRT or about policy. It doesn't imply that at all. And sometimes it implies quite the opposite. And, and I want to take not so much a step back, but at least provide a little bit of context for folks who are listening. Um, I suspect plenty of the people listening are not evangelicals. And there may be some of yeah. them who are thinking, oh, this is not a conversation for me. But I do think that this has very broad implications. And I saw that Chris Rufo was attacking this piece as being pro, quote unquote, critical race theory. 
Right. Um, but, <laughs> but, but what you actually do after laying out a, a kind of moral case for evangelicals understanding of systemic racism and the necessity of, kind of dealing with past harms, you lay out a group of prescriptions that are all very consistent with things that conservatives have traditionally championed. I mean, I, I champion a lot of the things that you talk about as actual remedies. So I want people to, to understand that's part of the reason we're talking about this. But the other reason why I wanted to talk to you is because when I read this piece, I was surprised to discover that a dear friend of mine for many, many years, one of my longest standing and dearest friendships is with a guy named Mike Kelsey who is mm-hmm. a pastor at McLean Bible Church, which is, I think, technically a megachurch and is one of the more yeah. common oh, yeah, megachurches sure. in the country. And they have been embroiled in a, a racial reckoning scandal as virtually every institution in our society has. And you know, I actually just spent several days with Mike and we didn't talk at all on the record about any of the current controversy and drama that he's going through. But he and I have talked for years about systemic racism and all this other stuff. And Mike is not a radical. He's no Ibram Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, Mike and I disagree on some things, but he is thoughtful and tries to be careful and is interested in the nuance here. But, you know, he, he's got a perspective on this and he offers it in his capacity as a minister. And this has created some, some controversy. So I'm, I'm interested in wading into it for that reason as well. Um, and as I read your piece, just kind of going from the title here, structural racism isn't wokeness, it's reality. I kind of want to define our terms, right? Because when I read it, I think about a definition I encountered in Radley Balco's work, that the existence or operation of a particular societal or legal framework will or does result in racial disparities. And in the specific context of, say, criminal justice reform, we're often told that, well, the criminal justice system has disparate impact on Black people. Black people have worse outcomes for the same crimes when they go into, you know, the courts, et cetera, et cetera. And if I'm going to grant that definition, and I, I don't know that you'll, you'll accept that definition, then I have to acknowledge that, yeah, no, it's, it's fair to say that there are disparate outcomes for Black people. Maybe there's some qualifications I'd offer, but it's fair. But even if I grant that, then I have to also grant that by the same definition, there are other laws that are structurally racist that people don't have any problem with and I imagine wouldn't want to change, like enforcement of gun laws. Illegal gun crime is, is probably going to have a, a disparate impact on Black people. And quite frankly, a prohibition on murder is systemically racist because Black people are disproportionately more likely to be both the victims of and the perpetrators of murder relative to their share of the population. And it seems to me that kind of illustrates the fundamental problem here. Is structural racism or systemic racism something that has to be a principal framework for us to look at the world? Because when I see structural racism isn't wokeness, it's reality, I think to myself, well, no, I think that's wrong. It's not so much that it's reality. It's one lens among many that one can select to look at the world. And when you select it, there are going to be certain things that you're more likely to see and various other things that are just impossible to grapple with because you've selected that lens. And what I worry about most is that a lot of people have adopted the race monomania that has just kind of seized Mm -hmm. the country. And I am a big fan of Barbara Field's work, Racecraft, and her rather penetrating insight that racism and race become 
the philosophical framework that we're operating within and they infect everything that we do and say in ways that we don't appreciate and as a result have profound consequences. And I think we're quick to see the defects on the right, but the defects that occur because of the way that the left is, again, similarly infected by race, we don't see those defects quite as well. So I've said a whole bunch and I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, it's great. It's great. So, yeah. So one of the, this is so hard because one of the problems in in the debate is we're not all speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. You know, even the word racism has different definitions. Now you talk in one community and racism means I have malice in my heart towards someone on the basis of race. Right. And then in other circles, racism also has to imply a power disparity, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, we, we have real trouble with a common language. But but what I did in my piece is I, and this is why this piece is not CRT, it's very different from CRT, is my argument about structural racism is pretty a narrow, a pretty narrow definition. And it, it's this, that powerful racists created structures for racist reasons <laughs> that have consequences and effects that are profound and linger to this day. So, for example, I talked about residential segregation. Nobody's going to argue that redlining and other measures that enforced residential segregation or school segregation weren't structural and weren't racist to their core. Uh, Now, where this is very different from CRT is CRT expands that frame a great deal. It will even question the classical liberal founding of the country as racist. Mm -hmm. Whereas my argument is that these structures contradict the principles of the classical liberal founding of the country and that the classical liberal founding of the country contains the remedies for these structures. But anyway, so if you have a, a structure that racists created and it was for racist purposes <laughs> and it has effects that are large today, that's mm-hmm. what I want to wrestle with. And, and that's why I talked about school segregation. That's what I talked about residential segregation and how they have very profound effects today. And the other key insight about this is once a structure is created, once segregation sets in for centuries, once that structure is created, there are a lot of ancillary things around it that, uh, and a lot of realities around it that exist that provide incentives for people to not change that underlying structure. And those incentives aren't related to race at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me, I'll make Mm -hmm. it concrete. So- Mm -hmm. You have a residential segregation that is confined to population of Americans into a particular place where they have less access to good education, less access to good health care, less access to personal wealth, as in like home ownership or valuable homes. And then there are these other neighborhoods right outside that homes cost more, schools are better. And I want to move from one location to another, but I don't have resources to move there. And so what are some of the solutions for that? One of the solutions is more multifamily housing. Instead of a house with a two-acre lot, you build an apartment complex. Well, then what you immediately find is a whole bunch of nimbyism setting in. In other words, we don't want that apartment complex. And you could put somebody under a polygraph and they are not racist to their core in the reasons why they don't want it. It's going to increase traffic congestion. Right, right. It's going to, you could go through all of this stuff. And so what I'm pointing out simply is, wait a minute, you know, these structures existed and they're maintained often for reasons that are not racist. 
But that's mm-hmm. how deeply embedded that structure is. And so it's important for us to be aware of that. Then in the remedy section to this, this is something that, you know, I, you're libertarian. I describe myself as a civil libertarian, absolutely, on the Bill of Rights and libertarian-ish mm-hmm. in other areas. <laughs> but I want, I want more economic freedom, for example. Yeah. I want yeah. more greater freedom for property owners. So if I own a five-acre plot of land in a city, I don't want to have to go to a zoning board and be completely barred from developing that for multifamily use. Uh, I want to have more economic freedom to develop my own property. I'm not saying there should be no zoning and no planning at all, right. but I'm saying that we need to tilt this, tilt this more towards economic freedom, which will have the effect of more social mobility. Same thing with schools, school, more school choice. You know, if we have a situation where people are segregated um, educationally and residentially, providing more school choice is a short to medium term solution that is um, that, you know, it can be broadly supported across the political spectrum. So a lot of this stuff and again, a, a CRT person, a person who's really deeply embedded in CRT, most of those guys reject classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I talked about was doubling down on the Bill of Rights. They're, so I'm doubling down on classical liberalism. CRT rejects a lot of classical liberalism. So it's the opposite in many ways of CRT. But, but the problem is people have essentially gotten to this place where if they hear anything that disturbs their priors on the issue of race on the right, they're going to label it as woke. And if you have anything on the far left that disturbs your priors regarding race, it's often going to be labeled as out and out racist. But you, I feel like you just have to persevere and try to figure out what's true and what's right, regardless of what those labels are. These are the binaries that we were talking about a little earlier. And I've, I've been having these conversations with, with Mike Kelsey at McLean Bible Church, whose name at least appears in your piece. And one of the things that we were we're wrestling with was the dynamic that you're describing where people aren't really engaging directly with the people that they're talking to necessarily. They're, they're pushing people into those binaries and everything related to race becomes critical race theory. But what I was trying to stress to Mike, and I think he would agree with this, is that it is the case that the same variety of hysteria exists on, on both ends. And mm-hmm. The question that we seem to be wrestling over is the degree to which there is a unique problem on the right that needs to be addressed in terms of their inability to engage with race issues in a meaningful, honest, nuanced way. But I I worry that there is an identical and perhaps as harmful and definitely as distressing commitment to racializing things on the left and amongst people who have, again, genuine and sincere concerns about disadvantage and historic awfulness, but their determination, and maybe I can personalize this and say your determination, and I don't mean that in a nasty way at all, Mm -hmm. to focus on race as a fundamental component of these conversations, it can potentially have problems. At a minimum, it seems appropriate to wrestle with what over-concern looks like and what the consequences of that might be. And it's the reason why I, I asked the question I did earlier about systemic and structural racism. I don't, I don't understand why that ought to be the fundamental framework for engaging with, say, criminal justice reform. I oppose the drug war. 
And there are specific arguments that I would level to try and get someone to appreciate the need for doing something about the drug war. But then I, I make this argument on the basis of like racial discrimination say the drug war is racist. And it's certainly the case that more people will hear that second argument. It is not at all clear to me that I'm going to be more persuasive, that it's going to be more constructive, or that a lot of important arguments and details about that argument won't be completely lost in the midst of our scramble to put all within the context of race. And I see it happen wherever race is injected into the conversation, even when one might imagine that, well, it's totally reasonable to inject race into the conversation here. That, I think that's all really insightful and true. And I think that different communities have different problems. So for example, the Harvard faculty and the Harvard student body has a very different culture and a very different outlook on the world than the elders and pastoral staff and congregants at, say, First Baptist Montgomery, Alabama. Right. Okay. Right. And so if you're somebody who is a member of the Harvard community, there's going to be an insatiable thirst for material written about how bad First Baptist is mm-hmm. and how much they underappreciate the role of race in American life. And there's right. going to be a rejection of somebody who comes in and says to the Harvard community, hey, you guys are over-interpreting this. Mm-hmm. You're eyeballs deep in CRT. <laughs> You're reading everything through a racial lens. You're rejecting the classical liberal founding of the United States of America. That might be the message that's needed in that community. And it's also going to be very unwelcome. Mm-hmm. So, so what we end up having in this highly partisan world is communities that have very different problems with their frame. Right. And they're very eager to hear about the other side's problem. Mm-hmm. There's a huge market for that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And they do not want to hear about their own issue because in many ways that's seen as undermining our ability to combat the other side's problem. Right. And then so the, the question becomes, where are we aiming for what's true? Where are we aiming for what's true? And if you're aiming for what's true, that's why I keep going back to this. You're going to be very uncomfortable from a partisan perspective if you're aiming for what's true, because you're going to have to say some things that First Baptist Montgomery does not want to hear. Right. And you're going to have to say some things that the Harvard faculty does not want to hear. And I'm painting with broad brushes here. Mm -hmm. But, But what ends up happening because of the dynamics of social media is that you're going to enter a world where you feel like you don't have a tribe anymore. And you're going to enter a world where you feel like nobody's got your back, so to speak. And that's a very tough place to be, even though it actually turns out. And I think you found this with the audience of your show and the resonance you're having. There's a lot of people out there trying to say what they, they believe to be true to the best of their ability, not what they are going to say to own the libs or destroy the cons who just want to know, Hey, look, these are hard things. What's the reality of the matter here? And look, I don't pretend to have it. One of the things that I said in the article, this stuff, when you're dealing about the legacy of all of racism and its enduring uh, presence in American society, this is hard stuff. Yeah. If anybody claims to come down from, you know, uh, the mountain with some tablets saying this is exactly how to deal with racism in the United States of America... You shouldn't listen to that person because nobody's got all the answers here. Right. But here's, right. 
here's I'm trying to wrestle in good faith with this in a way that is trying to get to take off the red jersey or the blue jersey mm-hmm. and and shun that those extremes that are just viciously attacking each other and try to figure this thing out and mm-hmm. and there's a tribe of people who want that they're just not all as vocal <laughs> right, right right they're just not as vocal when you say this is hard stuff that really resonates with me but it also reminds me of a conversation I had with another good friend of mine who was actually on the same trip who has a, a church here in New York, um, in Harlem, actually. It's a Renaissance church, Jordan Rice, since I've already mentioned mm-hmm. Mike Kelsey. Jordan is also very successful, incredibly bright. But the concern that I raised to Jordan was that there are ways in which the, the urge to get people to think more deeply about this thorny problem of the historic legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, of redlining, and the ways that we might be able to remedy that stuff, or perhaps even the urgent need to remedy that stuff. There's an oversimplification that happens there too. In one Mm -hmm. respect, there were profound disadvantageous consequences that came about as a result of the institution of slavery for the South broadly, for white Southerners in particular, who were not slave owners who didn't have plantations, let's say. You couldn't operate in many specialized industries because there were slaves who were doing those jobs and you couldn't do that in a profitable way. Even for certain slaveholders, they were working in fields alongside their slaves. The actual dynamic that existed for most slaves was not working on a plantation with hundreds of other slaves. It was far more complicated and weirdly, even crudely intimate than that. And to say so is not to diminish the horribleness of slavery. It's to acknowledge the complexity and the difficulty of it and to say that redlining, for example, wouldn't have just impacted black people who lived in particular neighborhoods. A white property owner who suddenly finds that redlining is degrading the value of the homes that they own in particular neighborhoods is going to feel the impact of redlining. That is a material harm that no one cares about and no one is talking about. We, we obscure that. And to, to kind of add to this, the specific example you give in your piece is, indeed, to this day, the median net worth of Black families is $17,500, roughly one-tenth the median net worth of white families, $171,000. That means less money for down payments, less money for security deposits, and overall fewer resources that enable social mobility. And this point is well taken, and it's one that I think people encounter in a lot of places. But why should I have any special concern for racial wealth disparities? What does that special concern earn me? And as I asked earlier, what about the overconcern? What we know and what we don't know here is that we don't know how much redlining or slavery or any of those other things actually play into any individual person's bad circumstances. What we do know very well, quite frankly, is what a single person can do individually to ameliorate poverty. It's Brookings, the three things, get married, graduate high school, don't have children out of wedlock. Success sequence, yeah. That that just works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I'm interested in when I see that the data about the incomes, I want that to be broken down. Let's examine the actual quartiles here when we're talking about blacks versus whites and their wealth disparities. Let's look at this by region. Let's control for age. Let's control for marital status. And my hunch is, and it's not just a hunch because I've done some of this work, that those disparities will shrink. They will vanish. And in some instances, they may even reverse. 
In which case, it just becomes a question of why we cut the cake in the particular way that we do, where it's just like white-black differences versus the universe of differences between black populations who have wildly different outcomes in the United States, which suggests to me that maybe we focus on specific problems and not generalized notions of problems attributed to races. So we, we are constantly in an either-or world when we should be in a both-and world. It is both true that there are in things that individual Americans can do from every American community, regardless of race, that because we're not in the Jim Crow world anymore, um, because we're not in the world of slavery anymore, because of the Civil Rights Acts, there are things that you can do that can greatly transform the material conditions of your life. And we see this all the time. I mean, we see social mobility by the millions. Mm -hmm. And so you can look to people and you can say, look, person of whatever, of any race in the United States of America, here's a success sequence. And if you do these things, if you do follow this success sequence, you're by and large going to do pretty darn well in this country, right? And so you, you have a, a message that says to individuals, take ownership and responsibility of your life. Okay. So you can say that to individuals, but then you can also turn around and say to governments, okay, mm -hmm. what is your responsibility? Individuals have a responsibility and we, and we often don't think in this country anymore in terms of mutual responsibilities. Okay. So individuals, you have a responsibility. Governments, what are your responsibility? Well, one of the responsibilities that a government has is, for example, if a legal system is actually blocking industrious individuals from having access to opportunity, mm -hmm. do something about that. Like occupational right. licensing, for example, is a yes. great yeah, yeah, I knew you It's a government structure that is blocking access to in, to economic opportunity. Fix it, right. okay? You have zoning rules that are saying. To people who are industrious and they want to move from one place to another to put their kid in a better school, that they don't have access to affordable housing, that they're going to have to stay put in a tougher place for them to uh, educate their kids because they don't have access to affordable housing. So you can, there's kind of two ways you can deal with that. One is we need to relax zoning rules to give more affordable housing. The other one is we need to have school choice that gives them access to better education where they are. So right. these are all things where it's mutual responsibilities. And so what I'm finding is that people are very happy to talk about the responsibilities that other people have. Mm -hmm. They're much less happy to talk about responsibilities that they might have. So mm -hmm. one of the things about sort of the individual responsibility argument, especially in white evangelical circles, is it's a great way to do nothing. It's a great mm -hmm. way to do nothing. It's to say, look, all of these black families in the community, down the street, man, if they just get married and stay married, everything's going to be fine. In the meantime, mm -hmm. in my community, in the institutions I'm a part of, where I have responsibilities, what am I doing? And just sort of Facebooking or tweeting that people can follow the success sequence isn't doing jack or squat. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's a difference between saying X community is at 135,000 and another community is at 175, and another community is at 195. But when you're talking about the difference between 170 and 17, mm -hmm. that's giant. That's giant. And and so one of the things that we can do is say, wait a minute, what are these structures that are in place 
in mm-hmm. my community that might be contributing mm-hmm. to that in a way that is unjust, in a way that is potentially, at least we can start thinking about how to fix it. And that, the reason why mm-hmm. I focus on residents and education right. is that those are two areas where you can pinpoint structure after structure after structure that prohibits and inhibits, not prohibits, inhibits mobility. Right, right. And I agree wholeheartedly. I'm not positing that, you know, the success sequence is where we should put our focus because people are to blame for their own bad outcomes. Only that this is grokkable and actionable. And yeah. it, it's kind of definite in a way that positing that a relationship exists between, say, redlining and Jim Crow and mm-hmm. prevailing outcome disparities, like, that's speculative. And more than that, I think I'm also trying to prevail upon upon you and others, that the framing of these issues with respect to race, it's a choice that we make. And it seems to me that the, the question is whether or not that binary, the black wealth and the white wealth are actually real and meaningful things in a way that ought to command so much of our attention versus the actual problems themselves. And in the interest of, of time, because I know I've, I've held you for a while already, um, I'll go back to the example I used earlier with systemic racism and the notion that, you know, prohibitions on homicide are systemically racist. I mean, I think <laughs> there's a sense in which, and I'm, I'm chuckling, but this is very serious, in certain sections of the country, murder is de facto legal. That clearance rates are, are so incredibly bad that homicides occur and there is almost a virtual certainty that you won't get caught mm-hmm. for having committed this homicide. And it is likely true that race correlates very tightly with the places where that is reality. But should I be concerned about that primarily because of race? Should I frame this as a racial issue and say, start talking about black on black crime? I hate that. Um, or should I recognize violent crime for the uniquely pernicious and destructive and corrosive thing that it is on a community, on a country more broadly, and try to remedy that problem and discuss it in that way? I think we see the obvious distortion that is created when we frame violent crime in that context with respect to race and we talk about black on black crime. We don't see it when we're sort of looking at it through this ostensibly like very well-intentioned, look what's happening to Black communities. Look at the peril of Black people. And for me, the peril is is apparent. It's self-evident in some respects. Mm-hmm. But the peril isn't, it's not Black peril. It's just peril. I'm not diminishing it by talking about it in that way. I'm trying to make it more inclusive as opposed to being prisoner to this philosophical framework that was created by slavers, by racists for mm-hmm. us, which is the notion of race and racial difference. And I think I mentioned to you in, in um, a, a DM, actually, I know I did, this notion of intergenerational guilt um, or inherited culpability is biblical. And you kind of break this down in your piece and you might even describe it differently. But Noah and Ham, Cain and Abel, when you provide a number of other examples, that's a thing. But that's also something that that I think I've always had a difficult time with morally. Our justice system doesn't work that way. We don't imagine that children should be punished for the failings of their parents by the justice system. It may work 
in kind of a religious philosophical sense, but in a you know practical everyday sense, there's something about that that doesn't yeah. sit right with well, most people. Well, let me let me stop you right there on that because that's I okay. think a misconception of what we're talking okay. about. Please, yeah. So what we're talking about is not punishing children for the sins of parents. Um, what we're talking about when we talk about um, the the repentance aspect that you know you see in, in scripture where time and time and time again individuals repent for the sins of their forefathers or repent for the previous sins of their nation and then what happens is they do work to make amends okay mm-hmm. it's not like you're throwing kids into jail <laughs> um it, what you're talking about is for like what their their parents did. Now there's an exception to this biblically that I I talked about that was involving the sin of the nation of Israel against a people. But Mm -hmm. the, the general rule is that if you're talking about um, the responsibility of justice, it isn't that you're sitting there and saying all of you white people, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a lot of this DEI stuff that gets, you know, that's talking about whiteness, all of you white people better shape up. Right. Yeah. No, it's that, that's precisely that's, what that DEI stuff does. Right. That's that's that. It's like whiteness is horrible. White people have these problems, blah, blah, blah. No. What you're talking about when you're talking about justice in the, this theological concept of justice is that there are institutions that exist intergenerationally. So mm-hmm. a corporation, a university, a government, they are perpetually existing institutions and they commit wrongs. They do bad things. And so the institution bears responsibility for the harm it inflicted, even when the generation or the management or the administration that inflicted that harm moves on. So make it super simple. Let's say you've got a corporation and it created an oil spill and that oil spill despoiled the environment for a hundred mile radius and the corporation fires the people who were incompetent and they stop the oil spill. So in other words, the oil is not still spilling out. Well, you have still a despoiled environment that it is the corporation's responsibility to address, even if it takes 10 years, 15 years, 25 years, 30 years to ameliorate the effects of that environmental disaster. And you go through five sets of CEOs. And so, so what I'm talking about is not, Hey, you, awful white person. Your right. great, great grandfather was in the Confederate army. You, you need to do something about that. What I'm talking about is, Hey, you government of Birmingham, Alabama, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are things that you did and structures you created that you need to get busy as much as you can. And we can't undo all of the catastrophic effects of these malicious and racist policies, but as much as is reasonably possible get busy carrying out your institutional responsibility to fix what you can fix. And so I think that's what gets lost in this because the DEI corporate Mm -hmm. diversity world and all of these really weirdo slides that you see popping up all over Twitter that, Hey, look at what they're saying at Disney or look at this ridiculous thing in this private school in Manhattan. A lot of that is directed at white people, bad white Mm -hmm. people, bad. But then Mm -hmm. what you actually have is institution committed harm, Mm -hmm. institution think about how to, to ameliorate that, how to fix that. And institutions contain people in them. 
And those people, some, many of them are white. A lot of them are not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, you've got even people who are not white in institutions that have committed institutional harm that should be dedicated to fixing that harm that the institution committed. And what we end up with, though, especially a lot on the sort of the right side of the political spectrum, is, well, wait a minute. What we did was we passed the Civil Rights Acts, and now everybody's mm-hmm. got a chance. We're going to wash our hands of this whole thing. But the comparison I used in our DM was, imagine if, I've, if I'm repeatedly hitting you with a hammer. Right. Now, stopping hitting you with a hammer is a great start. <laughs> this is good. It's great. It's fantastic. But you've probably been injured. (laughs) You've probably been injured by the hammer and there's some necessity of treatment. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this sort of concept of intergenerational responsibility. It's not that as a great, great grandson of a Confederate that I have to write a check to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) It's that if I am occupying a position in American society and an institution in American society that committed harms, mm-hmm. there's a responsibility to do something about that. Yeah, you you make that point very eloquently. And I, I think it's especially important for you to differentiate between your particular concern about intergenerational responsibility, which is very different than what I said, intergenerational mm-hmm. culpability, guilt. Mm-hmm. Um and the the hammer is a visceral illustration of what you're describing here in terms of the, the the present day harm that exists, the broken limbs that have to be mended. I think oftentimes the way that people talk about this, like in Ibram Kendi, for example, what they talk about is almost the kind of alchemy. They're reverse hammer blows, rebuilding your fractured skull. Yeah, you're not repairing yourself by hammering me back. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but this is precisely the prescription. Like the mm-hmm. only the only remedy for you know racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. And the dominant voices in the the social justice milieu advocating for racial justice are people who are pushing racial equity. And people like Robin D'Angelo, who are doing the kind of destructive DEI training that you talked about. And yes, Ibram Kendi, who is the principal personality associated with this concept of anti-racism. And I, I guess my concern is the pernicious harm of imagining yourself as a member of a community that is set upon by society broadly. And I worry about conditioning children to believe that they live in such a world. I worry about going shopping at the Gap. I've used this example many times. And you walk into the store and if someone talks to you, it's like, what are you asking me questions for? You think I ain't got no money to spend. And if someone doesn't talk to you, it's, well, wow, you're ignoring me. You think I ain't got no money to spend. It's a prison and it actually leads to bad outcomes. And there's actually a universe of related paranoid, um, things that can start to operate in a society where this becomes the the predominant notion of race relations and understanding of how race works in the society. I I don't have any desire to be the object of anyone's special concern. Right. And I don't want to think about people's needs in terms of their racial baggage. I think there's a sense of both essentialism and selectiveness in our concern about racial justice in the context of lots of specific issues. There is another way to approach these issues that isn't nearly as divisive and doesn't have the potential drawbacks that I'm alluding to, even if someone doesn't want to buy that the drawbacks are important. But in a world where we are confronted with the prominence of Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi, 
does it make sense to double down on racial identity or to jettison that framework? You know, that more um, in Christ, there is no Jew Gentile sort of way, this tribeless notion. I think that's a better way. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think that one of the problems you have in sort of the CRT slash DEI world is just what we alluded to earlier is that it's responding to the hammering by hammering back, mm-hmm. but hammering back at individuals who didn't do the hammering. <laughs> so right. a perfect, a perfect example of this is this Harvard admissions case that's coming to the Supreme court of the United States. Mm. You know, look, the history of race in America is very complicated, but I, this, I do know 18 year old Asian Americans mm-hmm. did not oppress and are not in any way responsible for pre- the legacy of Jim Crow. Okay. David, they are white adjacent and we need to deal with that. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> anyway. So what ends up happening is you say, okay, here we have a problem. What we have, the problem that we have is because of a lot of complicated reasons that are rooted in history. Not as many black students have access to the tools that are going to get them the Harvard admissions. Okay. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. You don't solve that problem by saying to 18 year old Asian American students, you know, you're just going to have to work harder than anybody else in all of our little racial classifications that we do to get into the school. And we're going to cap the number of you guys. We're going to cap the number. Mm-hmm. Like that is hitting people back with a hammer, innocent people mm-hmm. back with a hammer. It's incredibly divisive. It's incredibly divisive. Mm -hmm. Here's what I think is not just unifying, but actually productive. Let's go back down the chain and see what we can to improve educational outcomes. You know, what can we do Mm -hmm. to improve educational outcomes? That's where you're mending the broken arm rather than hitting somebody else with a hammer. And and that's where I think so much of our discourse runs afoul is is that we say, okay, look, we can accurately diagnose that we have people have been hit with an entire group of Americans are living with the legacy of being hit by the hammer. So then what we're going to do is we're going to turn around and once we gain power, we're going to wield it. We're going to wield the hammer in a different way against a different group of people. And that's why people get, and and justifiably, like imagine that you're Mm -hmm. parents Mm -hmm. of an 18 year old who has worked their butt off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and has all of these yeah. dreams and they're being limited for one reason and one reason only their race, their race. Yeah. That it. Yeah. There are too many people that look like you yeah. here already. So we, we can't have more. You, you people are too successful. That's why I think it's, e- it's, exactly. it's monstrous. That's why I think equal protection under the law is yeah. absolutely necessary. This is, this is what yeah. I talk about when I'm talking about doubling down on the classical liberal structure, equal protection under the law. Yeah. Now, then, yeah. the, then where I differ from some people is they say necessary, equal protection is necessary and sufficient. That's where I, that's right, where I, I disagree. It. I say necessary, but then there are other things that are necessary as well. For example, you know, all the stuff yeah. that we talked about, about education reform or housing reform, mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you and I agree on that. I think at the most fundamental level, the the thing I keep wanting to reinforce for people is at bottom, we're talking about good people who want the same things, Mm -hmm. who have different philosophical priors that make it hard for them to talk about it in an earnest way. And my my 
belief, my strong belief is that most of the members of McLean Bible Church, if you were to go and make the case for getting rid of prohibitions that make it hard to start your own business or things that make it hard to open up charter schools and have greater competition that improves quality of schools so that kids can have a better chance in life, they would be strongly in favor of that. And it's just the racial justice aspect that puts people at sharp odds and makes them imagine that they're hearing things that aren't actually being Mm -hmm. said. So I I think it's just important for us to keep that in mind. Last thing I want to throw at you, and I'd be remiss if I didn't do it, is we were assailed on a consequence as a consequence of that New York Times piece getting published for a number of things, but specifically because it was asserted over and over and over again that we mischaracterized, that we lied about what the bills contained and that this was a fundamental component of the argument that was being made and thus proved that we were monstrous and we were undermining, you know, their beautiful project to, you know, ban CRT and save all of the children in America. Now, the the last bit is I, I posit it in a ridiculous way, but that's not so different than the way that right. they actually posit it. But the first thing, this question about the language that we use when describing these bills, I wonder if you could yeah. speak to that because I think you're more capable of representing what we were going after there than, than I am, given your experience having battled these things out in courtroom settings for many, many years and doing, I think, underappreciated work with FIRE helping to beat back speech codes on college and university campuses. And when I say helping to beat back, I mean having profound success wrestling colleges and universities across the country to the point where you created a climate that was much more healthy than it would have been otherwise. FIRE, I'm I'm on the board. Yeah, FIRE's great. I should say I'm a little biased here, but FIRE just does indispensable work. And I I just want to thank you for the work you've done there as well. While I'm leaving you with this, this parting question. Oh, it's a great question. But first to brag on FIRE for a minute. When we filed the first speech code litigation project case, we filed this all the way back in 03. About 75% mm-hmm. of American colleges and universities had at least one clearly unconstitutional speech code. You roll forward to 2021, that number is less than 25% now, and, and they don't wow. enforce them. <laughs> the ones, the 25% wow. that are there. So so that fires had phenomenal success. And that's not to say campus culture is, is you know, completely no. safe and it's easy to talk about everything on campus. There are social and literal limitations on speech. There's a culture of free speech and then there's the the legal institutional sensibilities around free speech on a college campus. Both of those matter. And I think you, you all have done a great deal to shore up the latter. I mean, all of us have a responsibility to do more to shore up the the former. You know, so let's go back to the, the, and I'm I'm just going to walk through this sort of step-by-step. So let me, let me just begin by saying, what is valid about the critique is we should have added two words to the op-ed in hindsight, and that is have the effect of. So what we're describing mm-hmm. is the actual effect of what these very vague laws would have. And the, and the effect right. is they're going to tie my ability to teach about con- certain concepts to students' subjective feelings of discomfort. So essentially what the laws say, and and the language varies a little bit from state to state, but as a general Mm -hmm. rule, what they do is they Mm -hmm. ban, including as part of a course, the concept that a student should feel discomfort on the basis of race, sex, et cetera. Okay, so let's back up. So here are the two key phrases. Everyone focused on the phrase should feel discomfort and say, 
This is only banning someone coming in and saying, you should feel discomfort. It sounds very specific. No, it's back up. So it bans as including in part of a course, not just advocacy of an idea, not just a um, inculcate, trying to inculcate as part of an idea, just exposure to a concept. And what is the definition of a concept? A, it is a general notion, an abstract idea, a conception. So in other words, what you're saying is, as included in, you cannot include as part of any course, a abstract idea, a general notion that a person should feel um, discomfort on the basis of race or sex. Well, how does somebody know <laughs> that that provision has been violated? Right. By saying, I feel discomfort on the basis of my race or sex, okay, by locating it in their feelings. Because what's being prohibited here is not something very specific that says you cannot inculcate in a person the idea that they should feel discomfort. What's being prohibited here is no part of a course can contain a general notion or an abstract idea that a person should feel discomfort. So that means the way I have interpreted and a million speech codes and seen the interpretation mm -hmm. of a million speech codes in my legal career. And what right. that means is- in, in courtrooms and elsewhere. In courtrooms and elsewhere. That means that the evidence of the violation is the feeling of the student. Okay. Right. That's the evidence of right. the violation is the feeling of the student. And because the definition is so very abstract, just a concept, a general notion, then the feeling of the student trumps. And the actual effect of this is to ban teaching that could cause discomfort, mm -hmm. not just teaching that says that explicitly that it should cause discomfort, because that's not what the full statute says. And, and a lot of people right. have contested this construction. And they said, no, 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 no. And they just keep forgetting what the whole statute says. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, because the word concept has a meaning and that meaning right. is super vague. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just, that's my general notion. That's just my general idea. And it, it's a real problem in the drafting and sharper drafting yeah. would say you cannot inculcate and even then you're, you're having, you're going to have some vagueness issues. It's not without problems. But that's, exactly. that's not, yeah. that's not what these laws say. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, the funny thing to me was how people who are accusing us of misrepresenting the law were consistently misrepresenting the law in their rebuttal. They're blatantly misrepresenting. Yeah. Yeah. Among other things, I, I think, you know, my last point on all of this, and maybe this would be the last time I ever talk about it, but I doubt it, <laughs> is we have a very difficult problem here because we're trying to grapple with the actual complexity of the circumstance. The reality that across the country, different places have, you know, different manifestations of this problem. Brooklyn, San Francisco are uniquely charged places when it comes to these issues. And a lot of the craziest stories about the excesses of wokeness in classrooms like come from these places. Right. And it's, it's a lot of it is really weird and genuinely disturbing. But, you know, kindergartners and 12th graders are different. Mm -hmm. And these bans would affect all yeah. of them. So we probably need a different approach. More than that, these bans, while they are screwing things up and creating more difficult circumstances for teachers in the classroom environment, they're unlikely to address the cultural 
weirdness that is taking place in the country. Totally. Or let me put it a different way, the cultural reckoning that's taking place in the country that is infecting every institution and workplaces with these intense conversations about race. And there is no universe where the influence of Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project, which is virtually ubiquitous, will not find its way into high school classrooms. It is coming. And the only question is whether you're going to try to prohibit it and ban it and outlaw it and make it sacred knowledge, or if you're going to be trying to develop a curriculum, an approach to teaching kids that equips them to navigate complicated questions and to tolerate the disagreements that we have um, so that we can do that in a deep, meaningful and productive way. And that's what we're telling you. Thank we're you. telling you that hard work is what's necessary here. <laughs> it's, thank that you. There is no, fu- there is no, I was going to curse and I'm going to back up because I'm, I'm with David French. And I want to be, want to be respectful. Um, <laughs> that there is no shortcut and anyone promising you that they're going to save the children by passing sweeping laws that are beautifully written, that have no defects whatsoever, that can be improved over time and will magically solve this problem. They are wrong or they are lying could also be both. Yeah. They're selling you a bill of goods. They are selling you snake oil. Yes. And we, we're telling you the hard truth. <laughs> yes. Are there remedies for dealing with the worst offenses? Yes. They're the courts. Mm-hmm. And is it hard? Is it complicated? Yes. But there are people who are willing to help. For free. And we've seen enormous progress. That is how you achieve the success that you described earlier with respect to speech codes on college campuses. And we can have similar success when it comes to K through 12 education as well where the worst manifestations of this stuff are happening. But people, a culture war or a cultural reckoning, you have to deal with that in the culture. Changing laws won't help. And the only thing that I've seen that they've really done is given AOC a great binary to use. Why do Republicans not want to talk about the truth? Mm -hmm. Why don't they, why don't they want to reckon honestly with the legacy of slavery? That is a misrepresentation of the concern on the right. But it is one that resonates with a lot of people. And the the proponents of CRT bans just have to own that. Like that is that's part of the fruits of your labors. Yeah. And, you know, just to amplify that real quick. Look, these CRT bans do not ban CRT. <laughs> OK, mm-hmm. let's just whatever that is. CRT, yeah, they don't ban it. So we need to stop saying CRT bans. They're bans on <laughs> they're poorly drafted bans on on disfavored ideas. OK, right. So they're they're very poorly drafted. And they also ban things that you don't want to ban. Mm-hmm. So they don't ban CRT. Number two, they don't actually deal comprehensively in any way, shape, or form with the concerns of parents on the ground in the real world, which is often right. that the curriculum from the ground up is written from a very specific kind of radical left perspective. Mm-hmm. And all these people who came after us on Twitter, like, oh, why are you talking about curriculum? Because that's the actual battle. Right. That's the actual battle. It isn't, it. you know, a, a, a few sets of PowerPoint slides about whiteness. The actual battle right. is this sort of ground up curricular, holistic way in which people are taught. And that's why it is not at all a cop out. It's going to the main thing. That's right. You know, aside from better school choice. I mean, I, we, we haven't even talked. Well, we've talked about right. it throughout, but yeah, um, yeah. The main thing is the curriculum. It's the main right. thing. And so what you're, if anyone who's telling you about these CRT laws, they're distracting you from the main thing and they don't ban CRT. And I love that term that you use, sacred knowledge. There's nothing that you can do to make something more alluring to a 10th grader. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Than saying, I'm going to tell you something that the state of Tennessee doesn't want you to know. Right. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> right. 
I mean, it's crazy. Some of these public school libraries can have copies of Mein Kampf or even the Turner Diaries because you kind of need to be able to read some of these things in order to understand them. They, you will review a speech from some Confederate general who thought that slavery wasn't just okay, that it was essential and important and even noble. You need to read this and reckon with it and understand it. But, but apparently what's really not allowed is Ibram Kendi's book to be somewhere in the library. <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. It's so weird. Ibram Kendi is beyond wrong. I yeah. think, I actually think some of his ideas are actively dangerous. I want to confront them in an effective way. I don't imagine that I can outlaw them out of existence. Is ridicule a weapon? Yes. Is argument a weapon? Yes. Are they winning in certain respects? Kinda. But that's because certain people want to abandon the field and yeah. want to take illiberal approaches to trying to deal with this problem. And I'm, I'm not with that. I will never be a proponent of that sort of hysterical ideological combat. I don't believe that we're headed for an inevitable race war. But I do believe that if we don't defend our principles, that we are always at risk of losing them. And um, I also believe, David French, that you are a, a thoughtful and interesting and compelling interlocutor. And I am grateful for having had the opportunity to collaborate with you and to speak with you again, as I always am, and probing our, our agreements and disagreements. This has been fruitful and beneficial for me personally. I, I know that it's probably just been burdensome for you because I can be terrible and annoying. No, it's been great. I love it. <laughs> I've had a great time. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, well, thanks a bunch, David. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth column.